Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Just about a decade ago, a man went into a meeting with a mission. His name was Dan Wattendorf, and at the time, he worked at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is a famously secretive part of the Pentagon created after the Russians launched Sputnik in the late 1950s. Just let me set the stage here. There's a small conference room in a government building, some of the best technical minds in the country. And Dan Wattendorf is standing in front of this team, and he's briefing this idea to create an RNA-based vaccine. That's Regina Dugan, who ran DARPA back in 2010 during the Obama administration. And what we noticed partway through the briefing is that he has crib notes on his hand. And so we called him out on it, and there was a, a bit of laughter. And still, in that setting, everybody clear about the decision in front of us. He was very intent on getting that program secured and approved so that he could move forward. Wattendorf's big idea was that there should be a way to create a vaccine faster. Vaccines generally took several years to develop, but he was worried that wasn't fast enough. What he argued was that if we encountered a pandemic, we would need a fast and flexible response. Now, At that time, DNA-based vaccines had been tried, but they lacked potency. And proteins were made in the body. There just weren't enough of them. So Dan asked, what if RNA produced better results? This felt to some like a bit of a crazy question. Why? Well, a virus injects genetic material into the cell and hijacks it to make copies of itself. Vaccines had often been created by weakening or inactivating a virus, which spurs your own immune system to mount a defense. But what if we could just inject a part of that problem-causing genetic material into the body? Not enough to create a fully functioning virus, but enough to build a piece of it that could activate your immune system in the same way as the real virus. Well, that was the idea behind the RNA vaccine. Now, RNA had never been used to create a vaccine, and no vaccines using it have yet been approved. Plus, Wattendorf was pitching this idea with the notion that there might be a pandemic. And really, how likely was that? Then again, this was DARPA, an agency that has spent decades quietly working on everything from stealth aircraft to ESP to the internet, which they helped create. And ultimately, Wattendorf won. The government invested in the science of fast-tracking vaccines using RNA. Now, skeptics cited the lack of evidence at the time that it would work, and Dan cited the lack of evidence that it wouldn't work. And (laughs) that's what started the program, and here we are today. So from first virus sequence to first dosing in humans, an unprecedented 63 days. Now, there's still a way to go. The vaccine has to finish its clinical trials and needs to be produced at scale, but it really is a historic event. Regina Dugan stepped down as head of DARPA in 2012. She was the first woman ever to direct the agency. She's talking about the vaccine from a company called Moderna, which uses RNA, and it was developed along with the National Institutes of Health. It's currently in phase three testing during which the vaccine is being given to 30,000 people. Dugan has watched these enormous leaps in biology, some of which she helped shepherd, and she believes there's a strange silver lining to the pandemic. 
it may act as a catalyst for huge health-related advances, very much in the way that the panic over a Russian satellite catalyzed an era of space exploration. I think that the global pandemic is the Sputnik of our lifetime. And in the same way that Sputnik ignited the space age, so too could the pandemic, the coronavirus, inspire the health age. Dugan says there are a few elements that are crucial for this health age to begin. One, we have to be on the precipice of scientific greatness, with a bunch of breakthroughs that are almost there or almost helpful to people's lives, but not quite yet. We also need money. So during the 1960s, we spent wads of cash on science, on scientists, on engineers, and on that big dream of making space a reality. And finally, we need will. We have to want it. We have to collaborate internationally, which Dugan says she has seen real signs of during this pandemic. Though, yeah, international competition, it's there too. It is true that the space age started as a race, but a decade later, we had the International Space Station. We need to go there first. So we have already started to see change. The the secrecy and pace of academic research has changed. We're seeing collaboration in real time. Tens of thousands of viral genome sequences have been shared. There are more than 2,000 clinical trials underway to understand, treat, and vaccinate against the disease. And we absolutely must focus on bold, risk-tolerant efforts that are international in their focus. I mean, we should understand that there are certain categories, classes of problems that we simply can't solve within national borders. They defy lines on a map. And if we're going to solve the complex problems of human health, climate change, cyberspace, we're going to have to solve them globally together with international efforts. Are are there specific advances that you feel like you've seen in the last few years that you that you think this this is a sign that we're right on the cusp of something different where you know, really big health problems could be solved? Well, let me give you a few diverse examples. Let's start with tissue and organ engineering. So it is now more science than fiction to cultivate human tissue in a lab, even cardiac tissue that beats. Now, that advance happened at the intersection of biology and engineering, and similar advances are occurring for other organs. Okay, so so what would that mean? Why does it matter? Well, if we can represent human physiology with living tissues and many organs cultivated in the lab, we may one day be able to eliminate animal testing or increase the speed of a clinical trial without compromising safety. So let's just talk about that in the context of the current pandemic. So the recent mRNA vaccine for COVID went from virus sequence to first human dosing in the unprecedented 63 days, but the clinical trial will take about a year. So saving even one month in a clinical trial would mean almost 300 billion in avoided economic damage. So that really matters. That's one example. When I should say too, that eliminating the animal piece of this 
um, isn't just good from, you know, maybe a humane standpoint, but also mice are not people. And so you run into all kinds of problems, right? When you test something on a mouse, it works or it doesn't. That may or may not mean it will work in a person. Absolutely. And also there are implications for the diversity of drugs that we can test, as well as representing the diversity of our populations in the clinical trial. So imagine we could test new interventions on the cells of pregnant women and children, which otherwise wouldn't be possible. Or imagine all clinical trials were performed on a truly equitable representation of the population. And let me just ask you, so you'd be testing this on a pregnant woman, not by necessarily putting it into her, but by taking her cells out and testing it like in a little dish in a lab. Is that right? That's right. You can't okay. test drugs on pregnant women. That's right, very right. risky. Right. So, so the idea here is that if you could imagine a clinical trial that could happen in a high throughput screening system that is tissues and mini systems which are representative of human physiology, you don't have to be testing in humans immediately. Hmm. Wow. Um, I think there was another example that you wanted to give in terms of uh, like the areas in health where you think we could make big advances. Well, let's take neuroscience and mental health. So the world's leading cause of disability is depression. And depression is itself not one disease. It's a complicated set of symptoms that arise from different causes. About 800,000 people commit suicide globally each year, about half of which are attributable to depression. In the U.S. alone, 20 of our veterans commit suicide every day. Recent breakthroughs suggest that a change might be possible. So the foundations to do this are all there. We've had breakthroughs in genomics at the single cell level, we have new instrumentation that may permit us to measure the proteome and metabolome at the same level. We have advanced modeling on the computer science side and even miniaturized commercial electronics that allow us to measure objectively and over time the symptoms of depression, such as sleep, activity, and social interactions straight from our wrist. So if we could build a model like that, we would have an entirely new set of options to try for treatment and intervention. And what would those options, explain, are we talking a pill here? Like, what does this option look like? Well, there may be a whole variety of things we try. There may be new drugs that we can try because we understand the mechanisms of signaling within the body. But there may be other things that we don't yet understand or have not yet understood, and that is the role of the human immune system together with function in the brain, or the role of our microbiome and together with function in the brain. And those are all new potential opportunities for intervention. So let me throw an argument at you and see what you uh, think of it. Um, it's, been, it's been talked about on this show um, that a lot of the health advances in pharma, in biotech over the last 30 years have been um, miraculous, but have benefited small groups of people. So um, uh, Dr. Peter Bach from Memorial Sloan Kettering has made this argument and you know, he has said some of the big afflictions, whether it's diabetes, heart disease, opioid addiction, 
they have not really been helped in the same way as very often diseases that help smaller groups of people, partially because of the way financial incentives are arranged. And I guess I wonder, are we going to make great breakthroughs, but breakthroughs that don't address like the issues that affect most people's lives? So let's just take the, the current forecast estimates for the impact of the pandemic and its effects. It's estimated that it will cost the global economy up to 8% of real GDP in 2020. And McKinsey's estimates show that each year, poor health costs twice as much, around 15% of global real GDP from premature deaths and lost productivity potential. So if we rethink health as an investment, not just a cost, we could not only speed our recovery from the pandemic, but accelerate growth for decades to come. That's the shift in thinking required here. This idea that investing in health is an economic imperative as well as a moral imperative. So if you project ahead, you know, let's say, I don't know, five, 10 years, and we are, uh, as you predict, entering a health age, and maybe this is the door or the spur that we needed, the COVID-19. In five or 10 years, how do you think ordinary people's lives could be different because we are in the health age that you see coming? Well, I think the health age could bring a time when no one waits on an organ donor list, where the five-year survival rate for end-stage kidney disease is high. Right now, that survival rate is shorter than it is for most cancers. I think we can see forward to a time when we newly understand mental health and we have better treatments and intervention options for people who are suffering. And we can even imagine a time when we could assess both quantitatively and consistently your biological age instead of your chronological age. So what if I could tell you that you're 40 years old and you have the heart of a 30-year-old? Or conversely, if you don't modify your lifestyle, you're on a path to have the heart of a 70-year-old in the next few years. What would that mean for our choices and for prevention? So we see both shifts in what is possible by way of the advance and also a shift in our focus and will to bring global health to its, to its ultimate possibility. Regina Dugan is the chief executive of Welcome Leap. It's a healthcare nonprofit, and she's the former director of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Regina, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Kara. We will have a Washington Post piece on our website that Regina wrote. It's about her vision of a health age and what she's doing to make it happen. That's at innovationhub.org. We'd like to give a warm welcome this week to our friends listening to us on Virginia Public Media in Richmond. We are delighted to have you. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Caitlin Falds. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRX.